That's a really great, um, great hymn to introduce some of the stuff we're going to talk about tonight. We're going to look at Mark chapter 1. And that hymn, Beams of Heaven, I love the way that hymn both brings out the ideas of our longings, but also the way the authority of God is the key to those longings being met. I think one of the great tragedies of our world is in its attempts to kind of throw off what it regards as tyrannical authority, and really the idea that any authority except me doing what I want to do is tyrannical, I think we don't realize how we've given up hope that things can ever be made right. I remember a few years ago coming across a quote by Alanis Morissette, which I'm going to have to paraphrase. I, I quote it a lot, but it, it's, it's basically this. She says, you know, she talks about almost like this revelation that came to her when she realized, realizes that God, or he, she, or it, merely notes rather than judges. And she says, once I realized that, it made me a whole lot more responsible for my own life. And I realized that the onus is on us humans, you know, that we're the ones who are going to make this world what it's going to be. And I thought, what slavery that seems that masquerades as freedom? And I, and I think this hymn gets closer to the, to the truth and the reality uh, when it talks you know, about sufferings. And you have to know the guy who wrote this hymn was the guy who was raised among slaves um, in Western Maryland. Um, actually, he was born in Berlin, Maryland, which I think is where they filmed the Blair Witch Project, right? Um, and is that true? I think that's true. Anyway, he, um, but this, this guy, you know, he's, you know, certainly knows firsthand all, ki- all kinds of suffering that I'll never know. Um, but in verse three here, he talks about, you know, wickedness a while may reign. See, there's that authority language. Satan's cause may seem to gain, but there's a God that rules above. And our hope for love, mercy, and justice to prevail is that there is a God that rules above who, as he says, with hand of power and heart of love. And in a lot of ways, you know, authority is a difficult thing to talk about in our world because people don't want to embrace it. They don't want to talk about it. They want to live in this fantasy world where they think that they can get rid of authority and still have a life that's worth living and dreams that are worth dreaming, and it will never happen. And it's true with the church as well. When the church loses her grip on authority, she ceases to be the church the way God would have her to be. Uh, I think one of the best examples is from Martin Luther King's letter from a Birmingham jail. And I'll I'll read you one one paragraph that I think is so, so powerful in this regard. Uh, He writes this, There was a time when the church was very powerful. In the time when the early Christians rejoiced at being deemed worthy to suffer for what they believed. In those days, listen to this, in those days the church was not a thermometer that recorded the ideas and principles of popular opinion. It was a thermostat that transformed the mores of society. Whenever the early Christians entered a town, the people in power became disturbed and immediately sought to convict the Christians for being disturbers of the peace and outside agitators. But the Christians pressed on in the conviction that they were a colony of heaven, called to obey God rather than men. Small in number, they were big in commitment. They were too God-intoxicated to be astronomically intimidated. By their effort and example, they brought an end to such ancient evils as infanticide and gladiatorial contest. But do you see... The church could never be the church, and the church was the church in those days only because 
They believed that it really was better to obey God rather than men. They really did believe that the authority for the church was not popular opinion. Whenever the church loses that, the church loses her sense of what she's to do and the courage to do it. So we need to talk about the issue of authority, even though we live in a very anti-authoritarian age. So be it. Jesus still speaks to his world. And in chapter 1 of Mark, we read these words, starting at verse 21. Mark chapter 1, start at verse 21. I love how Mark really, things happen fast in Mark. Immediately this, and then immediately that. And, And you just see all these different ways that the authority of Jesus is portrayed, even in these, these short verses that I'm going to read. They went to Capernaum. This is Jesus and the disciples that he has with him thus far. They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching, because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Just then, a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an evil spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, said Jesus sternly. Come out of him. The evil spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were all so amazed that they asked each other, What is this? A new teaching and with authority. He even gives orders to evil spirits and they obey him. News about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon, that's Peter, and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever and they told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand and helped her up. The fever left her. And she began to wait on them. That evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons. But he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him. And when they found him, they exclaimed, everyone is looking for you. Jesus replied, let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. So he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. Let's pray. Jesus, we do pray that even now you would exercise your authority to move us to believe and obey your word. Help us to be true followers. Help us to be those who seek the truth. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. How do you react to authority? How do you react to authority? You're probably like me. Initially, first reaction is always, wait, what gives you the right? You know, how often have you found, have you ever found this in your heart, where you have rebelled against authority and broken a rule just so you could proclaim to yourself or to somebody else that you were free, rather than because you actually wanted what breaking the rule would get you. 
It shows that, you know, so often what goes on in our hearts is I don't care what I'm supposed to do or not supposed to do. I just don't want anybody to tell me what I'm supposed to do and to not supposed to do. It's an important issue in in our culture. We live in a very anti-authoritarian age where our knee-jerk reaction is to think that evil or that authority is inherently tyrannical and evil. Now, traditional cultures have a very different fear. They don't fear authority. They fear being found to be sinful. But modern cultures, like that of your parents, they fear something a little different. They don't fear sin as much. It's not a concept that's as, as strong for them as the concept of being unproductive, unefficient, not being you know, kind of fully realized. But in our postmodern culture, which affects us in so many ways, the, the great fear really is to be found to be enslaved to something. The great irony, of course, is that in all of our proclamations of freedom and individuality, we are in so many ways enslaved. And it's just crazy. I was just thinking, you know, who can even, you know, turn on the news? Well, particularly like the internet, like Netscape, you know, when I open up, you know, Comcast, my, you know, homepage, you know, just to see like the crazy antics of Britney Spears, you know, a woman who should have enough money and everything that the society says, if you have this, I mean, her message of sex is power, flaunt your sexuality and you can be who you want and get what you want. She is not free in the least sort of bit, right? And it's not just drugs and alcohol. It goes much deeper than that. Those are symptoms. And you see it all around. I always, it always, I always find it amusing when people think that they can go to thrift stores and find, you know, really individual T-shirts that will sort of mark them as an individual you know, and yet we're so predictable in the kinds of things that we find in thrift stores that Urban Outfitters can, you know, have them manufactured in a factory and know that they're going to sell enough of them to, you know, to, to pay for them. There's so many ways that we think we're free, that we think we're charting our own course, and in reality, we're not. And, you know, G.K. Chesterton, great um, author, Christian thinker, about 100 years ago, had a, had a very profound way of putting this issue. He said this, when you break the big laws... That means like the things that God has written on your heart, love, justice, mercy, the Ten Commandments, like we talked about last semester. When you break the big laws, you do not get freedom. You do not even get anarchy. You get the small laws. Now, that's a a very important insight. What he's saying is you never are free of authority. Even when you're proclaiming that you're free of authority, you're still submitting to some authority. You get small laws instead of big laws. And so in our day and age, when we think that we've finally broken free of the big laws and and the, the big things that were oppressing people, like traditional morality and belief in God and Jesus as the only way, all these kind of things that seem so oppressive and intolerant, when those are cast aside... New petty authorities, petty authoritarianisms, take their place. Like, uh, my, my wife was mentioning a little earlier, like the idea of beauty. The idea of beauty is, is an oppressive authority in our culture, for men and for women. And yet, if you don't have a higher authority, you'll never be able to fight against it. Racism. 
certainly is, a, is an authority in our culture in a lot of ways, and yet you have to have a higher authority. You can't even say that it's bad unless you have a higher authority that speaks to you about the purpose for which human beings were created. It's an important issue. And in the church, you know, there really are um, two really prevalent attacks on authority that need to be need to at least mentioned. The first is theological liberalism, which basically says this, what God has said is subject to our reason. That our reason is really ultimate and everything God has said has to be subject to that. That's one front that the church needs to constantly be fighting with this regard to um, authority. But on the other front is more the evangelical um, problem with authority, which is this, the authority of our experience, what you might call evangelical pietism. Pietism, the idea that I just know what's true by my feelings, and I know what's real, that I don't care what God said, I know what I, I, know what I feel like God's telling me to do. You know, well, God, you know, I, I remember, you know, sometimes it comes down this way, somebody said, well, I really feel God's leading me to go to grad school and go another $100,000 in debt. Say, really? The book of Romans says, oh, no man, anything except the debt of love. Do you think that has any relevance to your course of action that you're proposing? No. I don't want that. I don't, I don't want to even have to think about that. When was the last time you stopped doing something or didn't start doing something simply because God said so? We may talk a good game about the authority of the Bible, but in a lot of ways, it's not our real authority. It's a very helpful thing, actually, to try to talk about and even examine your own heart on what are the small laws that really control me? Is it my friend's opinions of me? Is it the idea that I need to be all that I can be and therefore I never should miss an opportunity to experience anything or an opportunity to do this or that? What, what are the small laws that are controlling us and how can the authority of Jesus help us? Because the real, the real, the real enemy... To, to being the church the way Jesus wants us to be the church is the idea that we have the right to define reality. What we would call self-autonomy. I have the ultimate authority and I will agree with Jesus as far as he agrees with me. And, you know, we do it all the time. We read the Bible so that we can find things that buttress our own preconceived ideas rather than let the Bible change our opinion about things. We tend to swing between two extremes, I think, between ignoring authority and then wanting to use our authority to get everybody to be like us in the church. But Jesus never flexes his authority just for thrills. He never uses his authority just to gain a crowd or to serve popular opinion. He always uses his authority to serve. As a matter of fact, one of the, one of the most amazing things about Jesus is his authority. Over and over in this passage, as Mark is beginning to say, here's the public ministry of Jesus, here's the beginning of it, and the, the, the defining characteristic of it, at least at the beginning, is his astonishing authority. It's everywhere. It, it's, earlier in this chapter, I didn't even read, it's seen in the way he calls people to follow him, and they follow him. So he shows he has authority over people. He has authority over nature in this gospel. He has authority over demons. He has authority over diseases. He teaches as one with authority, not like the scribes. Over and over and over, his authority, and his authority is astonishing. People have never seen anything like this. His authority is astonishing. Yet, as we go through this passage, what I want you to see is the most astonishing thing about his authority is not the existence of it, but the way he uses it 
the way he uses it, which is even more astonishing. So, so where do we see in this passage his authority? We see it first in his teaching. Verse 21, verse 22, the people were amazed at his teaching, it says in verse 22, because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. The teachers of the law, the scribes, were very important in this day and age. And they were teachers, professors, lawyers, all wrapped up into one. But their way of teaching was basically by taking the written word and digging into it and then also digging into all the things that had been written about the written word and being experts in all of that tradition. And the way that they taught was by quoting people who had said things about the word. Their, their authority was a derivative authority, derived from the word, but by this time, really derived from people who had said things and tried to understand the word who had come before them. Now, there's nothing, nothing necessarily wrong about church history and tradition. It can be a helpful guide. But it's, it's a very poor master. Jesus comes and the people recognize right away, here is one who doesn't teach by saying it is written. But he teaches, you know, elsewhere it says this, he teaches in the Sermon on the Mount, you've heard it said, blah, 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 blah. But I say to you. It's a huge difference. You've heard it said or it's written versus I say to you. He, he, he teaches not just new amazing things, but the manner of his teaching, particularly the authority of his teaching, is astonishing. Astonishing. And the word here, you know, where, where it talks about how they were amazed at his teaching, amazed in English has pretty, pretty I think, uniformly good, positive connotations. The Greek word actually has some negative connotations to it. The connotations of alarm, and being disturbed. So when it, when it says here that the people were amazed at his teaching, it also, in the Greek, has the, some of this character of they were alarmed and even disturbed by his teaching. And, and such is the nature of authority. When we feel it, it disturbs us because, again, you know, like Chesterton said, you can never really have anarchy. You never can have no authority. There's always some authority operating somewhere. And when you feel the authority of Jesus in his teaching, it is going to butt up against your authority. Always. I, I, I think, you know, one of the things you, you need to, should always ask yourself is, do you ever get mad when you read the Bible? If you don't get mad when you read the Bible, I would submit to you that you are not reading the Bible right or you're not taking it very seriously. R.C. Sproul, great Bible teacher, said one time, the best way to grow as a Christian is to go through the Bible and underline everything you don't like and meditate on that. Because either you need to change or God needs to change. Do you, do you enter into reading the Bible as a conversation and you know, arguing back and forth with God? The psalmists do that all the time. The prophets even do that. But I don't think we feel like we have the, the right to do that. You do. You need to. The authority of Jesus is disturbing, and it should be disturbing those who follow him. It should be disturbing me. You need to understand that Jesus was not just a good teacher. He was a disturbing teacher. People got upset when he taught. And he disturbed people because he taught as one with real authority. Second, we see his authority over demons. In verse 23, now, 
You see this whole little scene. And this, is amazing. You know, this is what's going on. Jesus goes into church, and in this day, you didn't have an official preacher at the synagogues. Different people, different men would take turns you know, opening up a passage of Scripture and talking about it. So Jesus, it's his turn. He gets up, you know, he's teaching, and a guy in the middle of church <laughs> shouts out, you know, who are you? What are you doing here? You come, you know, uh, what is it? You, you know, um, I know who you are. What do you want with us? If you come to destroy us, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. It's a pretty, you know, pretty. Now, the people are amazed at his teaching, but then what is he going to do? It's one thing to be an authoritative teacher. It's another thing. What are you going to do in the presence of supernatural evil? What does Jesus do? Jesus, Jesus' authority here is, is amazing. It's understated. It, it seems like it doesn't really take any work for him. All he has to do is say, be quiet, come out of him. Now, you know, we read stories like this with modern Western eyes and we're tempted to say, well, I don't know, maybe this guy was schizophrenic or something. I I will tell you that you need to beware, you need to beware ruling out what God's word says because of presuppositions that aren't shared by the majority of people in the world, either now or in previous centuries. And there, I'm not sure it really makes sense to rule supernatural evil out of existence. In other words, to say, well, I can buy things that the Bible says and wisdom that I get from Jesus, but when I read this stuff about supernatural evil, I can't buy that. Listen, if you don't have a concept of supernatural evil, I don't think you can make sense of all the brokenness in this world. Human evil alone is not enough to explain the way this world is. I don't have time to go into it more than that. Come talk to me. We'll get coffee and talk about it. Um, But I will tell you this as well. In the New Testament era, era and in the New Testament, the New Testament clearly distinguishes between disease, mental illness, and demon possession. You can't just say, oh, the Bible, in the Bible times, they confuse those categories all the time, and what they call demon possession, we call mental illness. That's not true. The Bible distinguishes them, and I listed some passages if you want to see that. But what's really interesting here about Jesus is how different he is than the exorcists of his day. There were both Jewish and non-Jewish exorcists in, in the first century. But they all, they all practiced their art with quite elaborate rituals. Nothing like what Jesus says here, where he just says, be quiet and cast him out. The, the authority of Jesus that comes through this, again, is astonishing. And that's why the people are amazed in verse 27. They say he even gives orders to evil spirits and they obey him. The way that exorcists dealt with evil spirits is tried to manipulate them and they did all kinds of things. One of the things that they did was they had this idea that if you knew the true name of something, it would give you power over it. Okay? And so that's what the demon actually is trying to do to Jesus, I think. He's saying... I know who you are, but it doesn't work at all. You're the Holy One of God. Now, that's actually a very interesting title. It may seem like kind of a Christianese title. Who wouldn't call Jesus the Holy One of God? But, you know, this is the only place that title is used for Jesus. And it's also only used of one other person in all of the Bible. The Holy One of God. Do you know who's called the Holy One of God? It's Samson. Samson. Do you remember Samson? The strong man par excellence. 
who, who beats up on the Philistines, and God uses him to deliver his people, but he has a fatal flaw, of course, like all Old Testament heroes. But Samson is called the Holy One of God. And, and isn't, it, isn't it interesting here that the demon, the demon recognizes maybe a connection between this deliverer and the deliverer who he has met before. In other words, Jesus is the real strong man in a way that Samson never could. And as a matter of fact, a little bit later in Mark, in chapter 3, Jesus is going to confirm this because he's going to say, no one can enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can rob his house. And Jesus says that in the context of people saying, well, he drives out demons by Beelzebub. He must have a demon that's more powerful than the demons he's driving out. That's how he can do this. And Jesus says, no, that's not how I'm able to do what I'm doing. The way I'm able to drive out demons is because I have power to bind the strong man, Satan himself, and plunder his house. Samson was just, was just a foreshadowing of the real strong man who has power and authority over even supernatural evil. It's fascinating, though. The demons know who Jesus is, even before the disciples. And Mark actually brings that up a number of times in his gospel. But Jesus has authority, astonishing authority over demons. It's not just that he can cast them out, but the way he does it is unlike anything that people have seen before. And he has authority over diseases. Turn the page over if you're looking at the the outline. Now, one of the interesting things about this, this this miracle where he heals Peter's mother-in-law... I don't, I, don't know how, I don't know how the Catholic Church can try to hold on to the idea that priests shouldn't be married when Peter himself had a mother-in-law. Just throw that in. You know, it, it, it just, does, it just doesn't, doesn't fit. Um, but, but here, they, he goes to, to the mother-in-law's house. It's interesting. Archaeologists think that they've actually found this house. Do you know this? They've without a doubt found the synagogue and have excavated down to the very floor that was there when Jesus was there, but just a stone's throw away from that is a house that they think is Peter's house. And I won't go into why, but it's fascinating. And it's, it's even likely that that was the house where Jesus himself lived when he stayed in Capernaum. This is not just fantasy land kind of stuff, cleverly invented myths. This is reality, and you can go there and you can walk around on the same floor that Jesus walked around on. But look at this. This is all in a day's work for Jesus. This is still the same day. Here's the picture. He goes in the morning to church. He casts a demon out in the middle of the church service. Then they go home and and they go to Peter's house, walk, you know, stones throw away. And Peter's mother-in-law is sick and he hears about it. And he goes and he heals her of this fever. Now, it's not a very impressive miracle as far as healing miracles go. But it definitely has the marks of the personal remembrance of Peter. It was important to Peter. This is a day when you didn't have antibiotics, and who, know, who knows what the outcome of a fever is going to be? It's not like when you get a fever, okay? And, and yet, you know, Jesus, what I love about this, this picture, and, and some people may look at this and say, well, you know, he heals her, and then she has to start working. And, and some people have even used this passage to say, this is what women should be doing. You know, they should be waiting on men. But that would be really misconstrued, this passage. This is actually a beautiful picture, because... In, in one sense, this, this, this woman is, is rendered useless, in, in a certain sense, by this disease. 
When Jesus heals her, he restores to her the dignity of being able to serve the Lord. The word used for waited on him or served him is the same word used of the angels who attended to Jesus after the temptations in the desert when God sent his angels. It's not a demeaning word at all. It's a word of great dignity. And it is, it is great. It's a very, it's a very um, I think, encouraging idea to see the way that Jesus brings healing into our life so that we can serve him. Not just because he needs little worker bees, but because we were made to serve him. And he restores to us the dignity of that. I know sometimes that save to serve little phrase gets thrown, away, thrown around in a way that makes me a little uncomfortable. But, but the image here is that her dignity is being restored. She's given back purpose and meaning in life. But then the multitudes come to him for healing. And Mark notes particularly here, that it's after sunset. See in verse 32, that evening after sunset. Why does he say that? Because these people, not only were they sick and demon-possessed, but they're laboring under bad theology and bad teaching, which told them that they were not allowed even to walk to get healing on the Sabbath. Mark makes this point that you would understand something of the misery of these people, which is not just from their sin and their sickness, but it is even from the bad teaching that they've gotten from the church. So they have to wait until after sunset, till it's not the Sabbath anymore, because the Jewish day ends at sunset. So now it's the day after Sabbath. Now they feel that they can go to Jesus. How tragic! How tragic that the, that the religious teachers have given them teaching that keeps them from running to Jesus. I wish that that didn't happen anymore. But I'm afraid to say it does happen. But look at the astonishing way Jesus uses his authority. Jesus has every opportunity to gather a huge crowd. The crowds come to him. But he doesn't want it. Over and over again in the Gospels, he, he drives the crowds away even. Here you see in verse 35, when he has the crowds, what does he do? He slips away to go pray. And Peter just doesn't get it at all. When have we heard that before? Peter assumes, assumes that you have to do what the crowds want you to do. And again, I wish... I wish that I could say that Christian leaders and Christian celebrities never fell into that false idea. I wish I could tell you that I never fall into that idea. But but the authority of Jesus trumps that of the crowds. Jesus doesn't apologize to Peter. He says, oh, you're, you're right. We've got crowds of needy people here. Of course I need to stay. Of course I need to keep working with them. No, Jesus has his own agenda He's not uncaring. As a matter of fact, because he's caring, that he refuses to be dictated to by the crowds. He uses his authority, avoids using his authority, excuse me, to gather big crowds. And, um, you know, it's fascinating that he's in Capernaum at all. Capernaum is not an impressive place. Now, it's not the smallest little town. It's on the trade route. 
But, you know, um, Eugene Peterson has a, has a great little sermon where he talks about Capernaum. He says, archaeologists have done quite a bit of excavation of Capernaum. And they know that it was only a couple blocks long. And the two things that they found the most of at Capernaum are fish hooks and coins. There was a tax collector there. It was on the border between two different kind of areas. And there was a, some Roman soldiers there. There was a Roman bath there. But basically, it was a fishing town right on the Sea of Galilee. It was a blue-collar place with a tax collector. It's a place where they have fish hooks and they have coins. It's not Rome. It's not Jerusalem. Jesus never sets up a base of operations in Jerusalem. As a matter of fact, Capernaum is about as far away as you can get from the authority, power, political power structures and still be in Galilee. And I suspect that one of the reasons he does this is Jesus has his own timetable. He doesn't want to bring all hell down upon him before it's time. When it's time, he has no problem, you know, going right into the belly of the beast and sort of, you know, punching it and saying, come after me. When he goes and heals Lazarus, and we're going to talk about that, he deliberately goes knowing that they are going to be out after him after he heals Lazarus. But here, it's not time for that yet. So he uses his authority, refuses to use his authority to gather big crowds. And yet, of course, the things that he does are astonishing and they draw crowds. Right? Back up in verse 27. Um, or verse 28. News about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. How could it not? In the middle of church, he casts a demon out of a guy. Of course news is going to spread. But here's the, the really fascinating thing. Jesus continually commands demons not to tell what's going on. You see this here um, in, in verse 34. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. And you go, what is this schizophrenic Jesus? At one level, he's wanting to do these things to proclaim I'm the Messiah. But then at another level, he's saying to people, don't tell anybody about this. And he's telling the demons, don't tell anybody who I am. What's going on? And here's what's going on. Jesus has committed himself to the call, to the call of being a Messiah who will not bring glory upon himself. He resisted the temptation when Satan tempted him in the desert to to exercise his power in a way that would bring glory and honor to himself. He refused and he continually refuses that. Jesus has compassionate desire to heal the sick, sometimes brings him into conflict with his calling and his commitment to not make a big splash. Now, we don't understand that because we think, well, of course Jesus should want to make a big splash. But do you need to know this, that Jesus' time on earth leading up to the cross was for him the time of humiliation, The time when scripture had predicted and when he had committed and embraced this vision that his time of glory was not yet. And he doesn't want to use his power in a way that will bring glory or comfort or make his job any easier. It's not what he's supposed to do. And he knows that and he embraces that. And yet, while he wants to keep things quiet, sometimes... There, there are, there, his compassionate desire to heal means that he has to do things that are going to attract attention. And so that's why, see, here's the thing. Jesus doesn't always tell people to not tell. When he does something in a big public way, 
He doesn't have any real hope that news isn't going to spread. But when he heals somebody privately, often, especially early on in his ministry, he tells them, don't make a big deal about this. Be quiet. It's fascinating. Now, there are some other reasons for that, too. I think part of it is, again, part of that not wanting to bring the authorities down on him before it's time. But it really has to do with, with this idea about what the Messiah was supposed to be. The Messiah was one who would not call attention to himself. Isaiah says that in Isaiah 42. Now, this has confused a lot of people, okay? There, there was, a, there was a, a German scholar who basically came up with this theory, okay, how do I make sense of this tension that we see here in Jesus telling people but then not wanting people to tell? And he said, well, what really happened is Jesus never claimed to be the Messiah, it's just that after a couple centuries, when the church began to believe that he was the Messiah, then they had to go back and kind of find an explanation for why nobody in the time of Jesus thought he was the Messiah. And so they invented this idea, what they call the messianic secret, which is that Jesus, yeah, he was the Messiah, but he told everybody not to tell. So that's why nobody around him actually knew that he was the Messiah. The only problem, well, there's a lot of problems with that. One of the main problems with that is that you can't extract Jesus' claims to be the Messiah and still have anything left of the Gospels. He's claiming to be the Messiah all the time in words and deeds, implicitly and explicitly. But not only that, the Romans would never have crucified him unless they thought that he was a messianic pretender. Unless they thought he was claiming to be the Messiah and a political rival, they would have killed him in another way. Crucifixion was reserved for political criminals, for traitors, for people they want to make an example of. So it doesn't fit the facts that we know even outside of the New Testament from Jewish and Roman historians. But an even better explanation of this messianic secret of Jesus' sort of tension is just this. There is this tension between his compassionate desire to heal the sick and his calling to live in the state of humiliation while on the earth. And here's why this matters for you and me. There is an already not yet tension. Do you you hear that? Christians live with the sense that the kingdom has already come, and yet it's not yet fully come in the way that we see it and want to see it. But here's what you need to understand. Jesus himself experienced the already not tension in his own life and in his own experience. He is the Messiah. He is the king. And with the coming of the king, there is the kingdom. As a matter of fact, Jesus at one point said, if I am among you, then the kingdom of God is here. And the NIV translates that the kingdom of God is within you. But the better translation is, is within your midst. In other words, I'm here in your midst. The kingdom of God is in your midst. With the king comes the kingdom. Yet, the king has not been revealed in all his glory, thus neither has the kingdom. And so while Jesus comes and he brings the kingdom, he himself has to experience the tension of, I am the king, and yet I still have to shield, veil my glory. During this time of humiliation, there is a day coming when Jesus' glory will be revealed, but it's not yet. And that provokes so much tension and confusion in our hearts. But let me tell you, Jesus knows it, and he's felt it himself. And while there are glimpses of his glory, every one of the miracles is a glimpse of his messianic glory and the coming kingdom where there will be no more disease, where Satan will be cast into outer darkness, into the lake of fire. 
There is a day coming when what's hinted at in these miracles will be fully realized, but it's not yet. It's not yet. And Jesus himself knows about that tension. The church needs to keep that tension straight. Because so often we bring such confusion to the world and to Christians when we fail to teach that the already not yet tension is still at work. In other words, I I mean, so many Christians who are confused because they just expected being a Christian to feel like already without any not yet. And when they feel like, you know, things aren't what they should be. And they feel like maybe it's something wrong with them or maybe it's something wrong with their belief. And so they fall into these crazy churches that teach if you just had enough faith, you wouldn't have any not yet tension. All that is such nonsense and heresy. The already not yet tension is vital for us to understand if we would would really know how to persevere in the midst of this world that we're called to live in. Two more points. I know I'm running out of time, but just give me two, two, two more minutes. Jesus does not use his authority to serve himself or make his life or calling easier anyway, which should always give us pause when we're tempted to invoke his authority or ask for his authority to make our lives easier. Now, don't get me wrong. Jesus does heal people. He casts out demons. He cares for us. We certainly can ask him. But there's a difference between asking and demanding that his authority be used to make our lives easier. He models using authority to serve, and he calls us to do the same. And see, it's really by submitting to his true authority that we actually have any kind of courage come into our lives. Trying to please the crowds is not the way of Jesus, and it's not the way that the church will ever be the church. Jesus always uses his authority to serve. And, and then this, this final conclusion, because this is so cool to see this, this theme of Jesus using authority to serve goes all through the Gospels, and it comes to a glorious climax. Because verse 34 is not the end of the story. He doesn't let the demons speak because they knew he was. He goes out and he preaches, but the story is still moving forward. And there is a day coming when Jesus says, says this, I Lay down my life, only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again, this command I received from my Father. The ultimately astonishing thing about the authority of Jesus and the way he uses his authority is ultimately he uses his authority to lay down his own life. I mean, Jesus has astonishing authority, but it pales compared to what he does with that authority. And not just the way he, he, you know, he has to suffer not having big crowds and popular approval. No, Jesus uses his authority to lay down his life. Jesus never uses his authority for his own comfort or to prop up, you know, his agenda. He uses it to die so that the kingdom can be realized. And oh, that the church would do that. See, the church gets this completely wrong so much of the time. We want to use our authority so that we don't have to die, because we think that's what the world really needs. They need the church to take power and control and fix everything. But Jesus models 
using authority to serve. As a matter of fact, he says to his disciples, don't be like the rabbis. They love to call each other sir and use their authority to oppress. If you follow me, Jesus says, if you're my disciples, then you should be like one who came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom. And I'll tell you, the only way you can do that is if the authority of the word of God can trump your authority, which says, I need to live (laughs) my way. I know the way. I know the way that this stuff needs to happen. Jesus says, come and die. Trust my authority. Trust my authority. It's the only way you'll be free from your own petty authorities that hold you in slavery and fear and bondage. And it's the only hope for this world being changed is if Christians believe what we believe. We don't have to hold on to our authority. Jesus is the authority. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you. Not just that in you we find one with authority, though that is so helpful and and just wonderful and comforting to know that this world is not out of control, that you are on the throne even now. But Lord, even more, we thank you that you left that throne, that you set aside your glory so that you could use the authority given to you to die for people who didn't deserve it. So that your church could live, could live for the world around. We pray, Lord, that you would give us courage to put others before us, courage to submit to your authority that calls us to do that and trust to believe that that is what we were made for. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.